Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Uh, thank you all for being here. They, they introduced me as David, uh, and that is my name. Uh, and I am uh, one of the elders here at Providence, one of the trustees. And I'm really excited to get to teach in this Faith and Work series because uh, I am one of your elders, the, the one of your elders who works outside of the church or outside of kind of a Christian ministry uh, for a living. So I'm in this with you and I'm excited to be part of it. Tom, thanks for letting me jump in on this. Um, really, really good. All right. I always struggle to figure out how to fit all this stuff on one thing. But so I want to start with a question and uh, this kind of came up late in the process of uh, preparing, but, but really I want to ask what is the aim of life? What are we doing? What's the purpose? Right? I, as I was looking at one thing, I was trying to figure out how to uh, phrase something. And so I just did a quick Google search and, and I can't even remember what my, my actual search term was, but um, I was trying to pick out like how to say like bad aim or like that my aim is off or whatever. And uh, you know how Google when you search in there, it'll give you suggested things that it thinks you might want to search or similar searches to yours. I think it says people also search for or people also ask. And the question uh, came up and it says, what is the aim of life? And this is like one of the top questions that people go to Google for, which uh, I find fascinating. Uh, Google, the great sage of our time, people are asking it, you know, what's the aim of life? Uh, next phase is ChatGPT. Right? What is the aim of life, ChatGPT? Uh, and so it pops up and then you click it and the little thing drops down and it has like top, top result, right? And it gives you like a little snippet of what uh, it says there. And the top result to this question, what is the aim of life? It says the aim of life is to give your life a purpose or meaning. So, sorry, forgive me, I, I love Excel, but when you, when you, when you make a, a Microsoft Excel, you know what I'm talking about, Tybo. When you make a Microsoft Excel and you reference this cell, and that cell references the same cell you started with, it says this is a circular reference and you can't do this. That's that sentence right there. The aim of life is to give your life a purpose. So the aim of life is to have an aim of life. I don't know how that works, but humanity is running in circles. We don't know where we're going and we don't know what we're aiming at. We're all trying to answer this question for ourselves. Uh, popular business writer Simon Sinek, uh, he's built his entire platform on the idea of finding your why, right? Uh, his first book is Start With Why, and uh, he wrote another one called Finding Your Why, and then there's a variety of others that come from that. But basically, why do you do what you do? What are you, what are you trying to get at? What is the purpose behind the work that you do every day? Uh, and one of his famous quotes from the book, Start With Why, is people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it, right? So the, the, the marketplace has responded and said, we actually don't care as much about uh, what it is you make. 
but we want to know something about why you do it, right? Give us a purpose. Give us something more than just the, the product. Um, and so he's encouraging people to find their purpose, to take an aim at something. Um, and this all resonates because we all want to live life with purpose, right? Obviously, it was a top result on Google because people are searching it. And uh, the problem in searching for a unique purpose is that it's a tricky little task. Uh, how do you know if this is it? Maybe, maybe you find something. How do you know that that's still the thing that you're supposed to be doing, you know, maybe a few years in or a few months in? Um, what if what if I have to never, never actually find the right purpose? What if I do find it, but I never actually fulfill it, right? There's just so many like pitfalls in like looking for purpose in life that a lot of us get um, depressed and sad because it's like, I just don't know, or maybe I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get there. And the beauty of the Christian life is that we don't actually have to find our individual unique purpose in life. We know that God, that we were created by God with and for an amazing purpose. And it's worthwhile and it's consequential to us and it's consequential to the world around us. So we spent some time, we spent a good amount of time in this series, right? Uh, this is the sixth week, Tom something like that, sixth week. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time talking about the beginning, looking at creation, looking at Adam and saying, um, you know, in the garden, uh, how God worked in creation, how he worked himself for six days and then rested uh, on the seventh day, how he created us in his image. Uh, and that, at least in part, is to be workers, to image our creator by working alongside of him. He created Adam, he put him in the garden, and he gives him a task. And he says, steward my creation. He says, be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply, subdue it. He says, rule, cultivate, work it, and keep it. And this is a good place to remind ourselves, as he says, to work it and keep it. What is work? What actually is that anyway? Tom, in I think week one, gave us a definition. Uh, so let's revisit that for a moment. He said, work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of God and our neighbor, right? So, so we have this idea of what work is. For Adam, it was to be a gardener, to care for the animals, to grow crops for food, to manage the earth, to take the natural resources given by God, order them in such a way that they become more fruitful, more beautiful, uh, and more beneficial to society. It was to participate with God in the cultivation of the earth and the creation of that culture itself. And so for us today, work is of course the things we get paid to do. That's what we commonly think of as work. But I wanna broaden our horizons of what work is a little bit, just to make sure that we're not uh, forgetting anything or excluding anyone. Uh, work is also caring for and raising children. It's caring for and taking uh, your elderly relatives that may need that. Work could be uh, volunteer efforts at school or a charity, at church. Uh, and, and anything else. Work could be certain hobbies, art, music, gardening, bonsai, knitting, whatever. Like work is all your side hustles, right? There's so much of our life that can be categorized as work because we're doing something, uh, what was it? In service to God and others, putting that creative energy to good use, right? Um, and so I think the point here is that it's a broad subject. And thought of in that lens, it encompasses a very large part of our lives. 
It's who we are. We are workers. We're either serving someone, working to create something that serves someone, or simply God himself. This is our work. We do it all the time. So why do we spend six weeks talking about this? Uh, because it's more than what the Bible uh, what the Bible says about my job. It's more than how I deal with difficult bosses. It's more than how I deal with difficult customers or colleagues or any of those things. We study it because literally it's how do we, like Adam in the garden, live out our calling as people made in the image of God uh, and those of us who profess to have been changed uh, in belief by belief in him. So it isn't a secondary or tertiary application of the gospel but a key part in how we fit into the broad and beautiful story of God's creation. So we had to start with creation, with the beginning, in order to know what God intends. Uh, but there's an additional picture, an additional picture of, um, of what God intends, and that's at the end of the book. So we started at the beginning, we're going to flip to the end, that's what we read. Uh, thanks, Nate, for reading that. We are uh, we were talking in our community group this week, so we've been... Um, in our groups, we, we talk about, I guess, the, the week before in this series, but it's all been about work. So we were talking, and, and this actually has nothing to do with that, but we somehow got to talking about uh, our various uh, endeavors and efforts and attempts we've made at endurance sport. So between the five of us that were there, we had 5Ks, 10Ks, uh, running races, we've had triathlons, we had marathons, we had ultra marathons. Uh, none of us won any of those things, but we, we've tried them all. And... When you think about competing in a race like that, you know the race doesn't begin when they uh, fire the gun or when you go from the start line, right? Uh, nobody turns up and says, hey, I'm gonna run this race today. They saw the people crowded up by the thing and they were like, oh, you know what? That looks fun, I'll jump in there. Maybe on the 5K you could pull that off. Some of us may be on the 10K, but like the further and further you get, the less likely it is that that's gonna work. Uh, at least no one that wants to feel good about it afterwards, right? So you have to begin much earlier, three, four, sometimes six months in advance, training. And this, this is the part that we all agreed was the worst. Uh, you know, we, we enjoyed the camaraderie of running a race with, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of other people. We enjoyed uh, the feeling of accomplishment, you know, when you're done with the race, and that, that was really nice. Uh, we might even find joy in the running of the race because you're, you're, you're doing something hard, you're competing something, like that, that, there's joy in that. But none of us enjoyed the three, four, six months of training, the long hours, the early mornings, the missed social engagements. These all got, were like, that was the negative side of doing that race, right? And so what carried us through to persist in that training? Well, we could look forward to the end. We knew the goal was to run this race and get a cool medal or to know that we had done that, to be fit, whatever it was. Knowing the end kept us in, in the fight. In spite of the pain and the struggle, the seeming unfruitfulness of every mile that we put on, um, we knew that the end would come. And because of that, uh, we, we could carry on for the promise that was in front of us. So in the same way, we have to look to the end of the story. In God's grace, he gives us a variety of visions and images of the age to come of the new heaven and new earth and our future with him for eternity. It gives us the other half of the picture that he was painting in creation. So let's look again at, at Revelation 21 and 22. We're gonna, we're gonna start there, we're gonna camp there for a bit. Uh, we're gonna bounce around to different things. You don't, don't feel like you have to flip all the time. I think we've got most of the verses on the thing. 
the other ones you can find later. It'll be fine. Um, so the Revelation's written by the Apostle John. As late in his life, God, God gives him this vision of uh, the future, of eternity. And uh, thankfully, he, he records what, is, uh, what he saw in great detail, and, and we get to read it now. And while a lot of it's highly symbolic, um, some, some of it is apocalyptic in nature, uh, it gives us great insight into what's coming. And so when we look at Revelation 21, let me just read it again. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the order of those things has passed away. And he was seated on the throne. He's saying, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, uh, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then the angel showed me the river of water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit uh, for every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. And they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for God himself will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. What a, what a beautiful vision. What do we see in this vision? We see, first of all, a new heaven, a new earth. It didn't all just burn up, right? It was renewed. Uh, and so uh, how do I know that? Well, Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Well, just that it didn't burn up. This seems like everything will burn up and be completely destroyed. It says destroyed by fire, laid bare. But if you look at the context of the verse, Peter was just describing the flood. So Noah, given a vision by God, he says, hey, there's going to be a flood, build this boat, put the animals in it. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of clean up the earth and start over. And so the, so the language of destroyed, he just used it. He said the, the earth will be destroyed by fire. I mean, by water. And what do we know? That the earth wasn't actually destroyed by water uh, in the sense that it ceased to exist. We, we, it was just wiped clean rather than wiped away. It's a significant difference. And so in the same language, when uh, he says uh, laid bare here, that's a Greek word, herisko, which means to come upon or to find after searching, uh, to be exposed or discovered. So like think of like pulling up, uh, you know, really... Uh, ugly 1980s like linoleum and there's like amazing uh, hardwood floors underneath or something like that, right? Uh, think of a home renovation where they take the building down to the core of its structure and everything is stripped away. Not too long ago, one of our neighbors, a few houses down, was getting their house, you know, doing this whole house reno. And uh, he told me they had 27 skips, uh, those big metal things on the street, 27 skips of rubbish taken away. And uh, of waste, building material, and earth removed from the site. And all of the old and broken and outdated and subpar bits were taken away, and then they put new and better 
and more efficient ones in. Still the same house, still has the same number 27 on it, um, but, it's, but it's completely renewed. This is the vision, this is the imagery here, renewed creation, new heaven, new earth, all the brokenness and sin and injustice and exploitation will be removed from the earth and it will be renewed. When you think about it, it makes sense. This is consistent with God's character, the God that we know, and this is how he's acted throughout history. He could have destroyed Adam and Eve uh, in the garden after they ate the fruit and just started over. Said, I, you know what? Adam didn't do it. I'll make a new one. He could have truly destroyed the earth with the flood and started over from scratch. He could have brought down fire from heaven on the Tower of Babel and started over. He could have struck down every one of us for our failings and our flaws and said, I'll try again. But he doesn't. Our God is a God of renovation and of restoration and of reconciliation. He loves redeeming his creation and making it new. So then we see, it says, uh, a new city. Look at the vision. It says a holy city. Calling it a city implies that there's a complex system of housing, of transportation, of utilities, production of goods, communication, right? It's a, a city is a complex structure. It's not a campsite. It's a city. And you look, you look, it keeps going. He says the great street of the city. This implies that there are potentially many other streets, not as great as this one. Uh, and, and then he talks about the crops. It implies that someone is maintaining and harvesting all of this fruit. We're not foraging for wild strawberries. We're not foraging for mushrooms, right? They're crops. All of these clues help us make the argument that we must be working in eternity. There are loads of jobs that need to be done in order to operate and manage uh, a civilization of this magnitude. Uh, there's another part where it talks about how, how big the city is and it's, it's super massive. It's like uh, you've seen these visualizations with like a giant cube sitting on earth and it's like, I don't know how that's going to work, God, but uh, you say the number's there, so it must be something. Um, and so, you know, you might say, well, you know, God is omnipotent. Um, so surely he could just make those things work without needing our help. Um, and that's true. He could do. Uh, but to leave no doubt, he mentions there and at the end of, uh, in verse four, he says, no, in verse, uh, in the 22, says there are servants. Where is it? Yes. The throne of God of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. So certainly if he could do all those other things without people, he wouldn't need servants either. Uh, so I guess the truth is he doesn't need servants or workers in eternity, but he wants them. He wants us to work with him. This was his, this was his vision from the beginning. Remember, he, he created Adam and said, work, cultivate, do this thing. So we keep reading and we see in these verses from uh, from Revelation, he says, no tears, no death, no curse, no darkness. So we're working in eternity, but the work is satisfying. The work is life-giving. It's enjoyable. It's purposeful. There's no sin to get in the way. There's no more curse to make things difficult and painful. There's no more futility and unfruitfulness to be frustrated by. Wouldn't you want to work in a world like that? If, if all the obstacles in your work uh, to overcome every day were removed, were, uh, were removed, wouldn't that be great, right? If Sharon and HR didn't call you every day, like work would be so much better. 
If the boring and frustrating bits of your job weren't there and only the parts that you enjoy, the reason you signed up for that job were there, wouldn't you get excited about going to work on Monday? Right, this is the vision that we see in the future. Isaiah 65 shows another picture of this city. Uh, and he says, uh, with the same heading, new heavens and new earth, he says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. This is the Lord speaking in a prophecy. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses for others to live in them or plant for others to eat. For as the days of a tree, so will their days be of my people. My chosen ones will long to enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, and they and their descendants with them. See, in Isaiah's prophecy of the future, he sees us building and farming and eating and drinking and bursting with joy. We're made to work and we will work forever, but our work will be exciting. It'll be fun, it'll be challenging, it'll be rewarding be fascinating, energizing, significant, and custom fit for who you are. This is, this is what God promises in the future. And then finally, at the end there, he says, uh, in verse 20, uh, 22, verse 5, he says, and they will reign forever and ever. The Bible began with God giving humans a vocation, a calling to rule, to look after his creation and make it flourish. Now, here in the renewed creation, at long last, we see that vision finally coming to reality and carrying on for eternity, really. I am get too excited and I talk over my words. Revelation is filled with this royalty language. So it's not just this one bit, so you can believe it. Uh, it says, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. They shall reign on the earth. They will reign with him for a thousand years. They will reign forever and ever. Even Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We're not just doing the dirty work of the kingdom. We're not servants that bring God food. We're not these things only, right? But we're reigning with God. This is, this is big. Like we're, we're reigning with God. The inheritance that we've been promised in Christ, our status as co-heirs with Christ is made good in eternity as we take the throne alongside Christ himself. So it's pretty, it's a beautiful vision. And, and, and this is what we get to look forward to, right? So, so that's it then, right? God created it in the beginning. He said, this is how it's going to be. Look at the end. This is how it's going to be. All done, right? It's a, it's a perfect straight line. You've got that one? I think that's next. Yeah, it's a perfect straight line. Creation to new creation. No problems there, right? No, uh, we know that's not how it worked out. We've already explored the fact um, that our work isn't what it was meant to be. Our work today can feel cursed because it is. See, in Genesis 2, God offers the kingdom to Adam. He says, here, rule, take care of the world, grow it, keep it, be fruitful, multiply, do all these things, give names to the animals, right? Have fun. But rather than accept the opportunity to rule with God, Adam and Eve, they chose to become like God instead. Effectively choosing to put themselves in God's place. The original sin, if you will, right? That the, the elemental bit of effectively every other sin we've ever committed 
is us saying, we want to be in charge. I, I want to make this decision for myself and I don't want uh, anyone to tell me that I can't do it, right? If you think of all the things, right? Stealing, it's like, you know what? Like that I, I might be able to get that, but I, I think I should decide that I get that now, right? Murder, it's like, you know what? There might be justice for this person down the road, but you know what? I want to be making justice and I want to make decision. So I'm going to take care of that in my own hands, right? So the, the core of almost every sin is us saying, you know what, God, I'm taking control of this right now and I'm doing this on my own. So what happens then is catastrophic. Sin is the nexus point that splits us off uh, onto this alternate timeline. So it's like Marvel Universe. We've got what was the timeline, but now we're jumped off on this other one. Uh, Genesis 3 outlines that curse that we feel today. We're removed from the garden. Childbirth is painful. We now compete with each other and relational conflict becomes the norm. Farming and harvesting become painful and a toil. Plants fight back with thorns and thistles. We'll sweat and work is hard and eventually we'll die. We live with this curse today. Sin has broken our ability to work and steward the creation well, right? Sin, it does all these things. Sin deadens our ability to wonder about the world. We don't have the ability to dream the possibilities of creation. It's like we have tinted glasses on that keep us from being able to see what could be. Sin dims our imagination. It's like there's a ceiling that we can't quite ever imagine. Like there could be something we could invent that could do something better and we, we just can't get there. Sin distorts our judgment because without clear authority and ability to discern good and bad are now totally skewed. We can see that in the world today. No one knows what's good and right and wrong. It's all up to debate because there's no authority. Sin denies our service to others. We lose track of the nobility and joy of serving and focus only on being served. Sin develops into sloth and laziness. We, when we make ourselves the ultimate, there's nothing to work toward or to push ourselves for. We just want to hang out and relax and be served. Because of this, our purpose is ill-defined, right? We, we don't have an external authority. We don't have a goal. And we're left to make that up on our own. This is where I was talking in the beginning. Humanity has come up with all kinds of misguided purposes to live for. And it's this existential problem. How, many, how often do we see or hear uh, in stories or movies or books? It's like a, a coming of age. It's a finding of our purpose. Like we're, we're always looking for it. And, and to quote Thomas from last week, our work needs a story. And without one, we're forced to write our own. And usually they don't work out so well. Pursuing our own direction. Can you go back to the, the, the thingy thing? That one, yeah. If we're left to pursue our own, right, we actually go careening off way down here. I mean, I know this is a, a, a picture and not real life, but, you know, reality is we be careening off. So if we look at it as, as bad as things are, there are many examples of people who have had good ideas. There are great, uh, you know, amazing new inventions that people have made. And people are, uh, people make good decisions and have good discernment. Many serve selflessly and work hard. Even those who don't um, put their trust in God, uh, you know, they might be the exception, but they do exist. And how can this be? You know, our God is so good 
that uh, his goodness and gifts still like creep through to this world, even though there's the curse. Uh, we call that common grace. It's like there's a tether holding this from going way too far off. He's holding it from going too crazy. But thankfully, in the same breath of the curse that God gives in, in Genesis 3, he promises the kingdom would return. One day, a descendant, the offspring of Eve, would grow up and he would crush the serpent's head and he would overcome the curse. And so it's, the kingdom is promised. And then we have this period where the kingdom is modeled, right? So you see um, the sacrificial system and the law uh, of Moses and um, the temple and all these things. It's, it's a picture to give us an idea of what the kingdom should be like, right? So we, we run through this season and then um, Christ comes and he interrupts history and redirects our path back um, to the original plan. Right? When Jesus is born, begins his ministry, John the baptizer says, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus' presence on earth inaugurates the kingdom of God. It, it's the point at which this goes back, starts moving back. And this is where we live right now. We're living in that portion of the timeline. One day we'll realize the fullness of the new heaven and new earth that we read about in Revelation is the kingdom of God established for eternity. And until then, we are to join God in the renewal of the earth. We get to join God in the restoration of the world into the new Jerusalem. Our Christian life is about partnering with God in this work in the world. Like apprentices studying under master craftsmen, we get to study what God is doing. We get to, we get to see his work on their earth. We get to see the vision that he has for it and we get to join him in doing that work. Jesus himself, when he teaches the disciples to pray, he says, by example, he, start, he starts with, well, he, in the middle of it, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? This is him saying our role is to best lean this line back to the, to the original bit as best we can. That's what we're here for. And how do we do this? Jesus has ascended and he sent the spirit. This is what JD told us. It's actually better that Jesus goes so we get the spirit and the spirit dwells with us now and the power of the spirit renews our ability to work, right? The spirit ignites our wonder for what could be. The spirit inspires our imagination to create. The spirit enhances our wisdom uh, and discernment. The spirit enables us to resist self-centeredness and to serve others. The Spirit invigorates us to fight laziness and work hard. Why? We've caught the vision. We know what we're building toward. It's been shown to us in these pages of Revelation. And guess what? The effort we spend in building this kingdom is not in vain. Why? Because Re Revelation 14 says, the dead will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Revelation 21 continues, about the new garden city, and John writes, the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, each one should build with care, because if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it into light, and it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work 
If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. We've got all these images. Paul, like Peter, sees a day of fire coming and like a controlled burn in a forest or a refining fire to purify metal, God will clear the world of all the things that's no good. He'll clear it of war, of violence, of exploitation, corruption, waste, gluttony, drunkenness, smut, grime. But look what he says. The fire will test the quality of that work. And if it's of high quality, it will survive. The kind of work that matters is going to find its way into the kingdom. I don't know how. I don't know exactly what that means and what it looks like. But it says it in multiple places that the work, their deeds will follow them. Their splendor will be there. The nation, the glory and honor of the nations we brought into it. If you build with care and you build with the right things, it will survive and you'll receive your reward. So the things that we do matter. God will take it, he will cleanse it, he'll purify it, and then integrate it into the kingdom. There's a Croatian philosopher called Miroslav Volf, and he says, the noble products of human ingenuity, whatever is beautiful, true, and good in human cultures, will be cleansed from impurity, perfected, and transfigured to become part of God's new creation. They will form the building materials from which the glorified world will be made. Not to be outdone, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, these will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. No, they are part of what we might call building for God's kingdom. We can't build the kingdom. Only Jesus can do that. But we can build for the kingdom. This is why our work matters. This is why our work today matters more than earning enough money to pay the bills, give, our, give to our churches, have a little left over for leisure. This is why our work matters more than just making it to retirement and taking it easy for the last 20, 30 years of our life. This is why our work matters more than being successful and earning a lot of money and making a name for ourselves. Because it's, it's so much deeper than that. This is why there's the same nobility in what a street cleaner does every day as what a world leader does on his day or her day. Because it's not, it's not what we do that matters, but how we do it and why we do it and who we do it for that matters in the end. Our work is the mission. What we build and what we create and what we do is the apologetic. The builders, the entrepreneurs, the artists, the musicians, the accountants, the lawyers, the teachers, the volunteers, the moms, the carers, and everyone else, we are the evangelists. So with that, let me pray as I close, but there will be a few up here who will be available to pray with you. For the next few minutes as we sing, I want you to contemplate what God is saying to you in this.
I want you to hear how God has uniquely made you and to use you to build the kingdom. If he's speaking to you, don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Listen to him. Hear him. Let us pray for you. We want you to trust him and we want you to obey his call. Because no matter what you're doing, no matter where you're placed in life right now, God has a specific purpose and it's part of building his kingdom on earth as it will be in heaven. So let's pray. Father, Father, we praise you for who you are, how you've created the world with amazing potential and purpose. We're amazed at how you left it with room to be cultivated by us. And as you've invited us to be to participate in that cultivation. Lord, we confess that we haven't always worked with intention. We haven't kept the vision and mission of your kingdom in mind. We've worked for ourselves. We've made up our own aims. We've come up with our own purposes. Father, forgive us for our nearsightedness and our self-centeredness. Jesus, thank you for interrupting this story, for redeeming the timeline and bringing us back to be right with God. Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us the power to work in ways that we couldn't have on our own, even if we wanted to. Now we pray, give us renewed vision for our work, one that brings all of our ability and our energy to serve others and to serve you. Spirit, give us what we need each day to work and build for the kingdom. And would our work and how we go about it be a shining beacon to the world and to our colleagues and to our neighbors that you're worth serving and you're a joy to serve. Amen.